0: Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. Last week, we saw that God showcases his glory in both his grace toward his people in their humble repentance and in his righteous judgments against those who reject him. And so this week, it begins. We are beginning God's deliverance of His people as He enacts His righteous judgments in striking the land of Egypt, Pharaoh, and all of Egypt's gods. And so we're going to cover the first three plagues this week. And you may not know the word plagues is Latin for to blow or to wound. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. God striking or dealing blows to Egypt to wound them in order to get glory over them and deliver his people. And so if you're taking notes, I've titled this message, Beginning Blows. We're just looking at the first three. And this is God dealing judgment to Egypt and their so-called gods. And so if you're physically able in honor of the reading of God's word, um, I'm just going to, I'm going to be merciful to you. We're just going to read through the end of chapter 7 while you're standing and we'll read the rest of the text later throughout the sermon. So this is the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Let's pray. Well, Father, your people have gathered beneath your holy word. Every jot and tittle of your word is breathed out by God and is profitable for our study. Lord, may we come humbly to you this morning, with hearts that are laid open and bare before the living God. We want to see Jesus even here. We want to see your ways and your judgments and delight in your glory and call them just and true as your judgments. Lord, we ask that you would come and that you would speak to us and that you would find in us well-pleasing faith that responds to what you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It is such a joy, week after week, we were just talking about this as brothers before the gathering, that it is a real joy for the people of God to get to gather weekly on the Lord's Day to worship him. And it's it's a sweet thing to look across at your neighbor and to know God has had grace on them and brought them into a true worship of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should give much thanksgiving to God for his grace in our lives and his grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But I was reminded this week in our reading plan of a few things. One, one of Israel's greatest dangers, and David alluded to this in the reading of the law, one of their greatest dangers was not just abandoning the worship of God, but of commingling the worship of God with the worship of false gods, with the gods of the land, so that they would come alongside and supplement their worship of God, the practices of the nations for what they wanted to see. Right, God wasn't coming through as we waited on him, and so we're going to sprinkle on a little sacrifice to this fertility God, to this God who's going to bless the harvest, or fill in the blank. And they would have this syncretism where they would add in the worship of the world around them to their true worship. And if you're doing our Bible reading plan, you read in Psalm 115 this week how utterly ridiculous idolatry is. God says, they can't see the idols. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't help you, and yet we bow down to them and people become like what they worship. And so to frame our study this morning, I want you to start out by asking yourself these questions. What or who am I prone to give my love, my affections, or my time, or my thoughts? that would compete with giving God priority in those things. Or you could say, who or what am I prone to trust in more than God? So so Psalm 115 says, those who trust in them become like them. So one of the things that idolatry is, is where I'm putting my trust in any given moment is what I'm worshiping in that moment. So we can claim God with our lips, but by our anxious toil and worry or our uh, trying to control our resources, whatever it may be for you, we betray where our trust or our worship actually lies in that moment. What you want or what you trust most is what you worship in any given moment. So, idolatry is not just this ancient thing that we see as a problem for the Egyptians, but as we look at God's vengeance against the idols of Egypt, we need to be aware of the idols in our own lives and in our own hearts that we are prone to give our trust, our love, or our worship to. I think David's words from Psalm 96 are kind of a fitting thesis for us as we dive into. Our Exodus text this morning he says in Psalm 96 verse 4 and 5 for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised he is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the Lord made the heavens and that is what God is establishing in these plagues and in these righteous judgments against Pharaoh and against Egypt and against their gods, he is purposefully, strategically attacking Egypt and its gods in ways that lay low their false worship and exalt him as the Lord. And so you see this language we've talked about over and over. God does all that he does for his glory. And he is delivering them in a way where Pharaoh and all of Egypt would know that he is the Lord. We saw that in verse 17 of chapter 7. So we're going to walk through the first three plagues in turn. And then we'll spend a little bit of time bringing it home into our lives today. So plague number one. The Nile River is turned to blood. So this is this opening scene of our text, Pharaoh's going down to the Nile could be bathe, most likely for his morning ritual of worship. And to understand God striking the Nile, and over and over again in our text, I hope you heard that again and again, the Nile, the Nile, the Nile, the Nile. And it, it's just this emphasis on God is attacking the Nile. And to understand that, you have to understand the significance of the Nile River to Egypt. So, Uh, Maybe you can't picture Egypt on a map, but in the very northeast corner of Africa, there's this river that flows north, of all things, and it breaks up into this delta, and it creates this very fertile land that seasonally it would overflow its banks and then recede, and it would leave this rich, lush topsoil that they didn't have to work for. And in a very real way, the Nile was central to creating Egypt and to creating life in Egypt, the economy in Egypt. It was their basis for transportation, for their jobs, for their water supply, both for themselves and for their crops. And so because of the central place that the Nile played in the life of the Egyptians, they came to worship it. And so... Uh, You can see this. They had a song, an Egyptian hymn from that period that sang lyrics like, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the death and comes to keep Egypt alive. So they actually believed that there were gods in the underworld that would issue forth this water that would come and flow through Egypt and give it life. They had multiple counterfeit gods that were associated with the Nile, but I'm going to give you two just for an example to show you the kind of worship that they would give both to the Nile and to the gods that they thought were the source of it. Uh, one god, I think pronounced "Kenum, was the god of the source of the Nile. And so this was supposedly their creator god. He would be the one who would form human bodies, for example, And then his wife would breathe life into those human bodies. So to them, this God who was the source of the Nile was also their creator, the one who gave them life. And probably more centrally was this God, I think you pronounce it happy. Even if you don't, I'm gonna say it, okay? So this God whose name is happy was the God of the flood. So when it would seasonally overflow its banks and give all this rich life to Egypt. He was the God that controlled all of that. He was supposedly a fertility God, the one who gave them all the rich growth in their land. And he was depicted as a bearded man because of his association with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and him were kind of working in partnership. And he had breasts and a pregnant belly because he's a fertility God. So you can see the perversion and just the, the gross anti-creation and anti-Christness of all idol worship, but even specifically in how he's depicted. And they praised him as, listen, the giver and the sustainer of life, saying he caused, quote, the whole land to live through his provisions. They sang of him, everything has come into being is through your power. Now, that that should cause you to be outraged a little bit inside. Knowing that we're prone to the same things. But here is the enemy strategically anti-God, giving the praise that is due the one true God. He is the one who is meeting out these blessings to them. He is the one who seasonally gives them their rains and causes the Nile to overflow and gives them all these blessings. And they take all these good gifts that God gave to them so that they would cry out to him and worship and they gave their worship to what was created or to imaginary gods. Now, on top of this abominable worship, remember back in Exodus chapter one when Pharaoh commanded all of Egypt to cast the newborn sons of the Hebrews into the Nile. And so is it any wonder wonder that God's first act of judgment would come against this object of worship that was so central to the life of Egypt where they spilt the blood of his children in the Nile. And so he would turn the Nile to blood. What was the, the burial ground for his people that was the source of life for all of Egypt, he would turn into a living picture of death itself. That is what blood is. Life poured out. And over and over again we read, God filled the land with blood. I mean, it's everywhere you looked. It was in all these different streams and pools and water that they had already gotten from the Nile. It all turned to blood. To where they're left trying to dig up groundwater from the side of the Nile just to find something to drink. With one blow, God hit their worship, their finances, their food, their transportation, and their jobs. It was as if it would be a stock market, stock market crash, a fuel shortage, a church building arsony, and widespread job layoffs all at one time for us. And it was directly aimed at the idolatry of Egypt and their oppression, their murder of God's people. Life came to a halt and they were powerless to do anything about it. Now, there is this humorous bit where these Egyptian priests are in the first two plagues. They do the same thing, right? So they're doing this counterfeit imitation miracle. And we saw last week, that their imitation miracles were real miracles, really supernaturally powerful done by the power of Satan himself. And they were deceiving. It wasn't just tricks. He was actually doing this. But it is uh, important to see that none of what they did could undo the judgment of God. They weren't showcasing their power in turning bloody water to fresh water. They took some of their only supply of fresh water that they had and demonstrated that they also could turn it to blood. So God gives the enemy power to demonstrate God's power and to accomplish God's greater purposes, but the enemy cannot undo what God has done. And so because they're able to imitate these plagues, Pharaoh hardens his heart and we come into plague number two. So look with me at Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants and the lord said to moses say to aaron stretch out your hand and your with your staff over the rivers over the canals over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of egypt so aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of egypt But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, "'Tomorrow.'" Moses said, "'Be it as you say, "'so that you may know that there is no one "'like the Lord our God. "'The frogs shall go away from you and your houses "'and your servants and your people. "'They shall be left only in the Nile.'" So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses.'" The frogs died out in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. It would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay. The Nile, a little bit understandable. They had spilt the blood of God's children into the Nile, and so he turned it to blood. Frogs? Like if you get outside of you've heard this story your whole life, like maybe you're here today and you're hearing this for the first time and you're especially confused because this is kind of weird, right? I mean, he could have done something even a little bit more exotic. Like there could have been tigers that just had gone through and just killed everybody, right? But he's plaguing them with frogs. And so you're left to wonder, well, what's the deal with frogs? And again, unless you understand the idolatry that plagued Egypt, then you won't understand the plagues that came against them. And so another of Egypt's deities was a frog goddess named Heket. You remember I said there was Kenem, who was the one who was like the divine potter who formed the life, while his wife was this frog goddess who was depicted with the head of a frog or sometimes a frog body. And she was the one that supposedly breathed life into the formations that Kingdom had made as the creator. And she was specifically known as the goddess over the final moments of childbirth or the fertility goddess. She was thought to assist women in childbirth and get this, I I laughed, I've laughed so much about this. I I don't even know if I can laugh about it in front of you, but I, I had to laugh it out so that I don't just sit here and break down. But this is hilarious. And I want you to see, like, God mocks idolatry. It's he who sits in the heavens laughs. And we're supposed to laugh too, right? One of the things that she was supposed to do is control the frog population. So (laughs) this is amazing. And the Egyptians had attacked the Hebrews at childbirth. And so God would smite the one that they believed to be the giver of life. And so this is as if God says, look, you want to worship frogs? The frogs were considered sacred, so this is another hilarious moment. They weren't allowed to kill frogs because they viewed them as sacred. So he's like, you want to worship frogs? Have some. And the whole land is covered with frogs. And we know later, right, when, when Israel's finally leaving Egypt, they're begging them to leave. And all the women are like, here's my gold, here's my stuff. I think the ladies are already here at this moment, and it just takes a while for everybody to come on board because you just imagine everywhere you go there's frogs jumping out of everything when you get into your bed at night when you go to open your oven when you go it says in their kneading bowls right so you think you got it all cleared out and you're kneading bread and you come on some frogs and and he specifically says to Pharaoh the frogs are going to come on you and on your servants and on all your people so Pharaoh when he's going to him it's like please get them off me right? There's a, a place specifically in Psalm 105 when the Exodus is being recounted. It says their land swarmed with frogs even in the chambers of their kings. And so everywhere they go, and it's not like frogs are just like, oh, that's gross like worms. They jump at you, you know? Like there's, the whole land is filled. I, I don't know if you've ever been near a river when frogs are mating or where there's like just tons of frogs. So the boys and I were at the West River last year, and it sounded like a plague. And they were everywhere. And there were frog eggs everywhere. And it was just the loudest thing ever that you could imagine. And so everywhere you're hearing this crazy croaking of frogs and the squealing of people and the shouts of people. And they're everywhere, and they can't kill them because they're sacred. <laughs> so they're stuck with them. And so Pharaoh is pleading, please. Plead with the Lord and take these frogs away. And he forgot the fine print of how to do it. Now, again, the, the Egyptian priests are able to do the same miracle. So to add to the inundation of frogs, what are they able to do? They just give them more frogs, right? They're only able to make it worse. And so Moses says, I want you to name the time so that you know. That when the frogs are gone, you know. You can set your watch by it. It was the Lord. And so, I don't know why. Pharaoh picks tomorrow instead of right now. And that next day, now instead of the frogs going back into the Nile, God kills all their sacred frogs on the spot. And the whole land is filled with the stench of rotting frog goddess so that they would know that he is the Lord. But still, because they were able to reproduce the plague, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And so we move on in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats or lice, one of the two, or something else, some menacing insect is what this word means. And if you've ever been to South Georgia in the summer, I'm pretty positive it was gnats. Um, and it says, they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, "This is the finger of God." But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So we're seeing a lot of the same themes that we've looked at in the Prologue to the Plagues where we see the obedience of Aaron and Moses and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Here it seems like Pharaoh's heart is only being hardened because his magicians are able to do the same things, and then here where they can't do the same things, Just as God said, he still hardens his heart because God is not done yet getting glory over Pharaoh and over Egypt's gods. And the plagues kind of come in sets of three. That's why we're preaching them that way. So, with the first two, they get a warning. And Pharaoh has the option of obeying God and letting God's people go, and this would not happen. Now, with the third plague in each set, there's no warning, he doesn't get a choice. To let them go this plague comes on unannounced just as God's judgment and the the language of the ground turning into these insects and not like every single bit of dust in Egypt all turned into these bugs but that they covered the land just everywhere you're walking you're stepping on gnats insects they're flying into your eyes They're just aiming for it. You know how they do in the summertime where they're like, look, an eyeball. But they're everywhere. Into your nose, into your ears, into your food, stuck in your teeth. They're everywhere. And the magicians are powerless to do anything about it. And they finally assent, "This, this is the finger of God. Now, it's always been the finger of God. Now they are just willing to assent to the fact, hey, even we... Like, for whatever reason, we're not even able to add to all these bugs that we have here. This was likely an attack on Egypt's earth god. Surprising that they had an earth god. Are you seeing a resemblance to some of their gods and some of our gods? So they had an earth god named Geb. I don't know who was in charge of naming the gods, but they sound weird in English. Um, But it was absolutely an attack on Pharaoh. Because one of Pharaoh's jobs was by securing the ritual worship of all these gods, he was working with them to maintain a kind of cosmic order. So to, to maintain the order of creation. And God does all these plagues to create this absolute chaos and judgment on their gods to show he is the creator God and he can decreate it in a moment for his namesake. It is God and not Pharaoh who sustains his creation. And so I'm going to close out this plague section before we go into a kind our of application for today with a reading that we did this past week in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm going to read just six verses. You can turn there if you'd like. Uh, this is part of the song of Moses and he's having them recount this song or memorize this song so that when they are unfaithful in the future, they would be reminded and repent and return to the Lord So this song is full of uh, warning and even prediction of Israel's unfaithfulness. So this is particularly with regards to Israel, but the principle remains the the same over all that God has made. And what He says about false gods and those who trust in Him, trust in them. So Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, I'll read verse thirty-seven through forty-three. Then God will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver Out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. This text and our text today showcase what we talked about last week. God does everything that he does for his namesake and for the sake of his glory in the world. And if you're going to understand him taking vengeance on anything, you have to know what it's for, what it was made for. And so if God creates you to live for his glory and for his honor, and you give his glory and his worship and his honor to created things, and you despise him and his word and his good gifts, then he says, I will take vengeance. Now, we don't have any framework for an appropriate or righteous vengeance because all the vengeance that we normally feel is unrighteous. It's us taking a a payback, a repayment into our own hands when God says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. But it is right for those who do evil or those who fail to glorify God or who fail to honor God or those who spill the blood of his children to receive a just Penalty and repayment for what they have done. And God is the great judge of all the earth. And he will just justly. At the last day, his judgment is just. And over Egypt, his judgment is just. And all of these plagues are showcasing he alone is God. Where are Egypt's God to deliver them? Where's the frog goddess when the land is overrun with frogs? Where is the Nile God when he turns it to blood? or the earth God, when all the ground turns into bugs and they are powerless to do anything. And he removes them at his time so that they would know he is the Lord and he is exercising vengeance on those who had oppressed his people and who had rejected his authority as God. So let's bring it home. I've got four different points of application uh, each of them are shorter than our previous points, okay? So this is a kind of our wrap-up, 10 or 15 minutes of, let's, what, what do we do with this, okay? We're not worshiping Egypt's gods today. We don't live in ancient Egypt. We've, we're on this side of the cross of Christ. What do we do with this? Number one, believe that power belongs to God and that he will win. All power in heaven and on earth and under the earth belongs to the Lord Jesus. He, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He does not share it. So that same text of Psalm 2, and it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs at those on the earth who try to come out from underneath the power and the authority of King Jesus. And he says, as for me, I have set my king in Zion. And he will not be moved. He doesn't share his throne. And the Lord Jesus has secured his triumph over the enemy forever at the cross of Christ and in his resurrection. Colossians, Paul writes, he has triumphed over the enemy and put him to open shame. And he has done a a victory procession in his resurrection and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And as David closed with last week, the God of all peace will soon crush the enemy under your feet. That victory is coming. So we need to see this from the false prophets who are in Egypt to today. God does give the enemy a a kind of leash, a, a longer leash sometimes than we think we would have him on, certainly. But... He is on a leash nonetheless. Any power that the enemy is allowed to exert is a borrowed power, a temporary power that God is only allowing to further serve his purposes. Whether we saw it in this chapter of him furthering the judgment on Egypt by their copycat miracles or at the cross where he seeks to overthrow the son of God and put him to death and God uses it For the redemption of his church and the universe. So, the only power that the enemy is allowed to have is a power that serves God's glory and your everlasting good in the long run. Those who oppose Jesus or work against him are under his control, and he will turn all that they mean for evil for his glory and for your everlasting good, just like he did at the cross. This is how Paul phrases it in Romans chapter eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the world is worshiping the gods of Egypt, and God is for you, then who could be against you? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of those things look like you're losing. All of those things make it seem like it was a waste to trust in Christ. Like he didn't care for you, that he didn't provide for you. Famine, nakedness, So imagine actually going through those and what your attitude would be toward God. And he says, all of these things cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As it is written, for his sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, listen, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So because of the cross he has showcased forever that he has won and he is winning and he will win at the last his victory will be complete and none of those who take refuge in him will be put to shame so number two flee to Christ for refuge this um, it's a it's a it, a way fascinating aside, but as we look at Moses, we need to always keep in mind that he says later in Deuteronomy that God will raise up like him a prophet from among Israel, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in all these ways where we see uh Moses acting in this Christ-like way, we need to we need to look through Moses and see Jesus. So it's fascinating in this text that Moses' first sign is turning water into blood. But Jesus' first sign in John chapter 2 is turning water into wine because the law came through Moses and it shows us God's righteousness and our sin and our need for a Savior. But grace and truth and salvation itself come through Jesus Christ. And he alone is the refuge for his people that can save them from From the wrath of God that is to come. And the plagues or the judgment of God will come again. And this time, not just on Egypt, but the whole world. And in Revelation chapter 16, John writes of that coming judgment and he uses the language of our text this morning to describe the judgment of God that is coming on the whole world. He's describing these angels pouring out these bowls of the righteous wrath of God against the sin of man. And he says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Now not just the Nile, but all of it. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, See if you can hear the same language as what we heard in this chapter, referencing back to chapter one. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, so the saints that are with the Lord who have been martyred for faith in Jesus, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You, you need to hear that in the midst of all of our experience of God's mercy and grace. For most of us, it's all you know. It's his grace and his kindness. And you read of his judgment that is so terrifying on the wicked And you can start to question God's goodness as if you know what cosmic treason against the holy God deserves. And so you need to hear the voice of the righteous made perfect who are in heaven without sin with a perfect vantage point saying, true and just are your judgments. It is what they deserve. God will never give anyone more judgment than they deserve. And that is not comforting to anyone because we all deserve an eternity apart from God and apart from Christ and John continues in verse 13 and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast now these are metaphors referring to Satan and the antichrist and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And these are the words of Christ. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So we saw this in the end of our second Thessalonians series, and we see it here today again. God is coming. The Lord Jesus is coming in vengeance on those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Those who refuse to come to him for refuge from his just judgments. And so we are charged to go to the world around us and to to give them the good news of God's pardon for those who come to Christ for rest and for refuge for their souls. We need to believe and proclaim this as a church from Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss or honor the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ. Is our salvation and our hope he this is everything that the Exodus is going to picture when we recited it in our assurance of pardon when I see the blood I will pass over you when I come to strike the land he is our hope in life and death so number one we need to believe that power belongs to God and that he will win number two we need to flee to Christ for refuge number three give god your worship. Now notice every single time that god has moses go and declare, let my people go," he says, "that they may serve me, that they may worship me. Is the the reason for their freedom was so that they would give to god their worship. And it's the same for us. He has brought us out of our sin and slavery so that we might worship Him and love Him and fear Him and trust Him with all of our hearts and with all of our souls. So I go back to the questions that we asked at the beginning. We have to beware, dear church, of claiming the one God with our lips while looking to the Nile for life. We come here and we think and we sing and we hear clearly and then we rise up from here And there are a litany of gods that are vying for your attention, for your affection, for your trust. And so you can take these three as examples this morning. If you were to look at the Nile as money or provision, and you were to look at the frog goddess as the one who was in charge of reproductive freedoms or a prayerless use, of birth control. It's an important word, prayerless, right? Where we just have our own freedom to do, to live our lives, to do what we want, regardless of God's command, to be fruitful and multiply, regardless of God's command for sexual purity and for sex to stay within the confines of marriage. We want to be our own God, and so we will worship ourselves, or our own fertility goddess, or turning a, a good stewardship of the earth that God has given us into an obsession that becomes a worship of the earth itself. These same gods are everywhere. And we fight by a true worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and by surrendering all of it to him. Our giving, whether it's tithes and offerings in a church or giving to people in need, our people must be ready To share. Generous, zealous for good deeds is what Paul writes. So, we can't do that if we're looking to the Nile for our provision and to sustain us. And so all of this is to see how seriously God comes against idolatry. And he brings us here to say, I want to purify you for myself. I have brought you out of the land of slavery to worship me. I have done it all of grace, not of good works, lest any of you could boast Is nothing that you did to bring yourself out of slavery. It was all by the blood of Christ, but I brought you out so that you might worship me alone. And last, we get to partner with God in his work. There's this really amazing verse in chapter 8, verse 13. Where it says, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Now, we know that Moses was not bending God to his will. But this is astonishing language, nonetheless. We, we know first, Moses, again, is pointing us to Christ as our mediator. And that Christ intercedes for us. And God listens to Christ for our sake. And does according to what Jesus prays for on our behalf. But... Moses also gives us a clear example to follow. God's word says that his eyes are open towards the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, and that the fervent prayers of a righteous man and woman have great power in their working, right? So he is inviting us, just like we've seen with Moses this whole time. God could have done all of this by himself. But he invites us into the work. He has been sanctifying Moses and bringing him to this place. And so Pharaoh's able to come to Moses and say, plead for me. And he goes to God and it says, God did according to what Moses prayed. And so that is an invitation to us. Not so that you can go in, again, trying to get God to do what you want. But as we come in, our our worship purified by the Holy Spirit's conviction, and he's sanctifying us in his truth, then we're clean vessels available for the master's use, and he invites us into asking him for what he longs to do. For us and in our community, he will hear your voice as you submit your knees and your voice to him for his use. Let's pray. Father, we cry out, righteous and true are your judgments. Lord, we praise you that Jesus went to the cross to bear the righteous and true and just judgment that we deserved so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and be covered by his atoning work. Thank you for the joy of being in him and being found in him having his righteousness not a righteousness of our own but that which is through faith in Christ and so Lord would you stir up our faith to believe that you are sovereign and that you are working all things even the things that we can't understand even when it seems like the enemy is being given too much freedom to prowl around like a roaring lion Lord all power belongs to you and you are sovereign You are working everything for your glory and for our highest good. Please help us to trust you and to be purified as we wait on you for a purer worship. God, we want to trust and love and fear only you. Thank you for this gracious warning this morning against idolatry. Thank you that you are able to humble those who walk in pride, And that the gods of this world, you will lay low. And you alone, Lord Jesus, will be standing on the last day. How blessed are those who take refuge in you. May we be found awake and clothed in your righteousness when you come. In Jesus' name, amen.